Mr. Brown? Yes? Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1932, and Brom Reiter joins us to discuss If I Had a Million. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Uh, we're back, everyone, with Brom Reuter. Welcome back. It's your, what, fourth time on the show, I think? Yeah, every season uh, one. Yes, yes. Yes, this is our fourth. I always forget what season we're on now. Four. We're recording totally out of yeah. order, but that's okay. We're here to talk about The Clerk, which is a subset of the anthology film that Ernst Lubitsch helped oversee called If I Had a Million. It is funny that it is almost impossible to Google this film because there is a certain song by a Canadian band that resembles that title that literally the Wikipedia article says, are you sure you didn't mean the Bare Naked Ladies song? But anyways, we are here to talk about If I Had a Million, an anthology film in which the central conceit is, you know, a rich, maybe dying, maybe not kind of Rockefeller type figure goes a bit insane and does the horrifically insane thing of instead of giving all his money to his kids, he decides to throw darts at the phone book and give a million dollar check to however many random people are in this movie. Question, do you know how much a million dollars in 31 buys you now? Uh, no. In America. It was like, it was like threefold? 22 million. <laughs> I wanted to say 10. 22 million dollars. Like, I'm going to overshoot and, and it's going to suck for everyone involved. But okay, I should have gone for 10 and it was 22. Wow. That's a lot of money. And the shape of the film is, you know, you have the framing narrative with the old multimillionaire played by Richard Bennett, directed by Norman Taurog. And what follows is a series of essentially eight basically disconnected short films, with the exception of the Richard Bennett millionaire popping up in most of them, but not all of them, strangely. He doesn't show up in The Clerk, which I found very interesting. And so it, this is a proper anthology film, right? This is, uh, I think, the only anthology film of this whole podcast. And what I found particularly interesting about it, and maybe a good way to get into it, is that each film in this anthology kind of occupies a different genre entirely from the others. It's just going off in every direction, right? Like you have a W.C. Fields farce. You have really sincere drama about capital punishment. You have a fairly tragic story, almost like a tragic comic story about this prostitute who finds inner peace you have a lubitsch movie <laughs> you have a, a a bad marriage comedy with charles Ruggett. so the film's going off in just about every direction you you could possibly imagine and the batting average is uneven i can't think of an anthology film made by multiple directors that isn't in some way completely uneven yeah like you said very uneven i prepared for this trouble in paradise and one hour with you were the two that i watched which proceed you know as episodes as well as also in his uh, filmography this movie because i wanted to prime myself a little bit for where is he now because he's made so many films at this point and you notice uh you can notice because the man suddenly from you know i think the last film that i saw was the wildcat no eternal love the what everyone forgets eternal, eternal love. love eternal love that was the one wildcat was fun see it no one can remember that movie <laughs> no one for for good reason. Maybe I should rewatch it. Maybe not. So that was the last one. And that was kind of um, a bit of a dud. 
there's a reason why people don't remember it. So it was a bit of a dud. What movie is this? <laughs> oh, sorry. That, it, it, Eternal Love. Everyone forgets it's it. That Eternal Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eternal. Wildcat was very inventive. Lots of big, weird sets, silent movies. Uh, he has a particular style going on, but he kind of leaves that behind. And it becomes, I don't know, I was watching these dialogues because i immediately realized why i fell in love with lubich when i was 19 years old because there's such a nice rhythm to them they're like jazz they're so good yeah and the timing is just impeccable trouble in paradise specifically but i had so many moments during one hour with you where i was just laughing out loud which you know doesn't always happen with comedies from the 30s you get a chuckle out of me but this one just like certain certain joke i think i sent you at some point like quotes from the movie. I think I sent my girlfriend some quotes from the movie because they're so funny. The writing is very good, but also his timing is just incredible. So it's great to see where he ended up coming from. What was that movie again? Uh, <laughs> Eternal, yeah, Eternal Love. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a great gap in there. Many things have happened, but he's gotten really good at that thing. He's kind of left behind this otherworldly, these weird uh, sparse sets or these like from his silent era, like he's kind of left that behind and he's going for a more realistic style. But in his rhythm, it's much more snappy to watch this with a lot of shorts from the same era done by different directors. I think that's why I'm harping on this so much, because it was uh, speaking of gaps, there's an enormous gap between whatever Norman Z. McLeod is bringing to the table and what Lubitsch does. With yes. two minutes and what, 18 seconds? Now, that's also unfair because if you have a good joke, which this basically is a joke. This is a lead up to a very funny joke and doesn't really do much with its narrative as, as in the clerk, the Lubitsch uh, section of the film. The rest of the shorts are all quite narrative. But in that, you notice the moment the movie starts, you immediately notice this lack of rhythm this lack of jazz mm-hmm. this lack of old like there are jokes that are being told but not landing whatsoever because the, yeah. the snappiness is not there it's not on uh, it's not on on par with whatever it is uh, lubich is doing and that is even that gap is made very clear the moment the clerk starts that's not to say that i didn't have fun watching because i texted you right after uh, during the grandma when uh, the, which is the last uh, short of the bunch I texted you saying we have so much to talk about because it is yeah such a strange, strange, deeply strange collection of movies. Well, it really, I mean, it is such a depression era movie <laughs> and it is so concerned with the effect of money on people and livelihood and yeah. the way that different people from different social classes interact with money in some ways that I think are thoughtful in other ways that maybe are less thoughtful. Um, some ways that I think are maybe a bit tasteless. Your point about the the way that the other directors who contribute to this, who are as follows, Norman Z. McLeod, H. Bruce Humberstone, James Cruz, William A. Sider, and Stephen Roberts. You know, the rest of those directors are, I think, are what Lubitsch would call, you know, shooters of scripts, right? You know, I'm torn between thinking I'm being unfair to them, because what if I spent a year following the career of Bruce Humberstone? <laughs> Would I, you know, would I develop the same appreciation for what he's doing? Maybe, but based on the evidence here, there is such a clear, I think, self-evident difference between what Lubitsch is doing. I think if I didn't know who Lubitsch was and I saw this film, I would immediately clock onto the clerk as the best of these, or at least the most artistically ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> the most poetic. It's, it's poetry versus fairly middle-of-the-road prose for the rest. Yeah. So 
let's talk about the framing story. There are exactly two shorts here outside of Lubitsch. I think work pretty much on their own terms. And I wonder if you'll be able to guess which, which are the ones I like. One might be very obvious. But we start with this uh, framing narrative. It really doesn't frame much of the film because we only return to it a couple times. You know, it isn't like between the segments we see more of this this millionaire. And I'm actually surprised we see him during the segments quite a bit. But um, we start with the framing narrative and go straight into China Shop with Charles Ruggles. And this starts a kind of pattern of the film. I mean, basically, it's average person gets fuck you money. And then the shorts go... One of two ways, they either successfully in some way or another say fuck you to society. Yeah. William Paul put it really well when he said that money does not buy happiness in this film, but it does buy an ability to free oneself from the constraints of society. So in the case of China Shop, you have Charles Ruggle, a, the most henpecked man in cinematic history who you know has a job that isn't a good fit at the store. He's been promoted from a bookkeeper to a salesman and he breaks China. So he actually loses money while working at the shop and his, he gets the fuck you money and comes back. And in a scene that I think is tremendously anticlimactic, kind of breaks some stuff. <laughs> he, he, he lightly smashes up the place and then it ends. And to me, this film, it's not bad. In my opinion, you know, this is a fine piece of narrative cinema, whatever, but this is going to be maybe something that we'll both do again and again and again. The clerk essentially does what this does, but does it, a million times better in less than half the time and with so much humanity and poetry and with barely a word spoken. It's the exact same yeah. punchline. And about half of the stories in this film are essentially buildups to the almost identical punchlines. Yeah. Put upon man or put upon woman in one case. Yeah. Uh, is able to get their little petty revenge by breaking out of their social strictures. I'm just going to refer to the opening scene where, anyway, he's walking around with a vase, uh, with a giant vase that looks very expensive, and he puts it on the side of a table, and then he walks away, talks to his boss about losing money because he breaks so much porcelain, and Lubitsch would have done something with that vase. <laughs> you know, he would have brought the vase back, he would have broken it and he would have changed the number of uh, that he lost $11 something like that you, there's a joke there so many moments in this film are just two people yapping 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 on about the scene like you said like Lubitsch said they are filmers of scripts the same thing with his wife who is presented or coded not even coded just like blatantly the quote unquote nagging wife yes you broke $11 worth of china well you see dear uh, of course i see henry i see a great deal more than you see of course you haven't got the worries that i have not that i'm complaining dear but you don't have to sit here day after day and week after week year in and year out paying the ice man for the milk and the milkman for the ice of course henry if you want to go on breaking as much china as you feel like breaking that's entirely your own affair henry excuse me and what i liked was that joke that he goes into the bathroom but Nothing is done with that. Like he could have gotten up from bed when they, you know, for the third time where he just go gets up and sleeps in the bathroom to just, you know, evade her quote unquote nagging. But he crawls under the blankets. There are so many moments here that do not land well as much as these actors are really doing their best. But this is it works as a theater piece. I do love the dream sequence where his wife becomes the porcelain and starts... <laughs> Like talking like a chicken. The very frightening compositing on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But also one out of focus compositing, which is very interesting. Yes. And it feels like it was the only way they could not make it like not make the scenes show as much, yeah. maybe because it's so clearly deliberately out of focus. But also him falling off the stairs is probably one of the best 
stair falls I've seen. There are a few physical stunts in yeah. this that are upsetting. Yeah, 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 yeah. The first car accident in Roadhogs, yeah. which we'll talk about in a minute, yeah. is was truly, I, I was scandalized. It was like, no one was hurt. Probably people were hurt. Yeah, it stressed me the fuck out. Yeah, but it's like watching a Buster Keaton, right? Like, you know that those stunts are all real and they could have gone wrong and, you know, and they went yes. wrong and they just did it again because they had to get it, get it on camera because, you know, show must go on. And it felt kind of like that as well, which was a nice breather. But then it just kind of returns to, yeah, people just talking him not really doing a good job of smashing up the place that much, (laughs) although he struggles with doing a great job here. And I like that he knocks on the door by throwing a porcelain cup on the floor, (laughs) which immediately triggers the guy, uh, his boss, because he's like, oh, you know, that's the sound of things breaking. I'll I'll Mm -hmm. immediately come out of my office, which I think is funny. But yeah, he just does that. And then he takes his pet rabbit, which is for some reason in there. I don't know why, but, you know, maybe I feel like the pet rabbit is some sort of stand in for like, I don't know, sex. And it feels like something to do with him not getting his rocks off in some way. Yeah. Or it might just be that rabbits were very funny in the 30s. A man with his rabbit. That might have been very, very funny in the 30s. My two thoughts on this that I haven't got to yet are one that the dream sequence is a great example of what I call a skidoo dream sequence, which is my own term I coined after the Otto Preminger film skidoo, which has a drug trip sequence that I love that sequence because it it so completely fails to be about a drug trip. Mm. It becomes about Otto Preminger's inability to really convey the abstract nature of a drug trip. Mm. This is similar where it's a dream that doesn't feel so much like it follows actual dream logic as it's just a bunch of random crap they thought was funny to throw together. It's overly literal and prosaic and feels very much like a scene in a movie rather than like an actual dream this character is happening. No, of course, but it is. It reminded me of that dream sequence they're trying to film in Living in Oblivion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the only way you can make this a dream? Put a dwarf in it? No, Tito. Have you ever had a dream with a dwarf in it? Do you know anyone who's had a dream with a dwarf in it? No! It's exactly that type of like Hollywood tries to do dream logic and it does not work. The fact that he's wearing a gown with like glass, fragile, and china on it, uh, which is very funny. This one didn't land at all for me, mostly because everything that happens is preordained from the word go. There's never a moment at which someone does anything that isn't the first thing you would expect. Yeah, I thought it was going to do that, actually, when you have Ruggles only throw one teacup down. I thought, oh, he's going to smash one teacup, say good day, sir, then go. I thought that would be that'd be kind of funny. But no, he does the first thing where it's just, he smashes it with his cane. And yeah. and then you cut to that large, expensive looking piece of the caricature of a Chinese person. And he smashes that because you cut to it. And I'm just like, OK. Yeah. And it's massively it's unsatisfying. However, I liked Violet. Oh, which is the lot. next one by a Stephen lot. Roberts. It's yeah. just not coincidentally by a fairly wide margin, the second shortest one. I think it's only three or four minutes. And it was one where I thought it was going one direction. It went in a different one. I think it successfully pulls the rug out from under you. And it's, it's about a woman reclaiming her own bedroom. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. She throws away the second pillow. Yeah, basically, so what happens is John Glidden. I do want to say, now that you mentioned John Glidden, we kind of glossed over it. But in the framing narrative, I love that the first name he lands on is Rockefeller. I actually thought that, like, okay, he's probably going to land, like, the yeah. minute he, like, opens the phone book. I'm like, wouldn't it be a funny joke if he, like, landed on a Rockefeller figure? So, and he, and he actually <laughs> I love that. Anyways, sorry, continue. It's a good it's a good joke. But once again, it's also, like, the way in which it, which it is presented is mm, everyone just starts screaming, like, no, no, not that one, you know, 
there's no beat. There's no, you know, moment of realization. There's no, there's hardly anything. It's here is a joke. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> Joke's just like, over. let me tell you a joke. Here's a joke. Okay, bye. Let's go. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And does the typical American thing of like loud equals funny. So Violet. Yes. Yeah, so Violet is basically a lady of the night, uh, a sex worker. She's accosted by a, a John Ford character actor. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's where I know him from. Of course, yeah. So John Glidden, our millionaire man, uh, shows up and gives her the check, then leaves. She can't believe it. She gets a room in the most expensive hotel she can find, and she she throws away the second pillow, and it's all about the fact that mm. she just wants to, yeah, reclaim her sleep and just sleep alone. Two thoughts about this, because I was, I was telling my partner about this as well. On one end, her immediate reaction was queen. Which, yes, I get, I get it. It's it's weirdly progressive in a way. It is also very much... It's the most pre-code of the shorts. Yeah. In, in the sense that this could only... This portrayal of a sex worker could only have happened before yeah. 34. Oh, no, no, 100%, 100%. But it's also uh, an excuse to see a lady undress. That is so well... Even if it's just reverse engineering a gratuitous moment, it's yeah. so well handled. Because basically, we're led to believe she has someone coming over. Uh, you know, she's going to maybe sleep with the guy from the bar. But no, this is just what she dresses in and she's undressing to go to bed. And that's the lingerie is a misdirection, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. I never thought of it as a misdirection. Maybe I read it beforehand, but like I immediately knew that it was going to be like, oh, she wants to sleep alone. And I love that she takes off her her stockings as final. Like, no, I'm going to sleep by I don't have to look good for anyone. And it's a good joke. I was surprised to see I had the same thing with this one as well as the other two Lubitsch's. They're so horny and there's so much explicit stuff in there that I'm not used to seeing in the 30s from the 30s. So that's uh, yeah, yeah. There's this. Yes. Virtually all of these have something that you're like, yeah, whoa, exactly. That's like her undressing is like, oh, whoa, she's in her bra. And, you know, there's not a gown like there's not layers and layers and layers of, you know, clothes that she's taken off and you yeah, never she's not get in to. 20 negligees or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So no, Violet Good. Do you want to say something more about Violet? No, it's short. Yeah. It's it works really well. I want to backpedal a little. It's short. It works just <laughs> fine. <laughs> uh, that's that's the truth. Because yeah, it also it also jumps a bit too quickly for you to register fully what's going on and doesn't convey it that well. The forger. I didn't care at all for the forger. This is uh, a George Raft vehicle uh, directed by H. Bruce Humberstone. But a man, it's a boy who cried wolf, right? It's a man who tries to forge a bank check. Gets caught. His picture's in the national paper. He gets a real check that's worth a million dollars. No one's ever going to believe him. And he goes fully insane because he uh, uses it to try and buy his way into a flop house for like pennies. And then he gets the cops called on him. It's a very mean-spirited short. To, to me, what's most interesting about it is is what it, it says, right? Because the previous two have been very simplistic stories about, hey, I got fuck you money. This one is what happens if you essentially are in such a dire state ethically that you are unable to use a windfall like this. It's the twilight zone. Due to such corrupt inner moral failings, we can say, we cannot even accept a good thing because we cried wolf. Because this is yeah. the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. And I have very little to say about it aside from that. I Like formally, it didn't speak to me in the least. I don't think George Raft is good in it. His maniacal laughter provoked some laughter from our end. <laughs> it's always good and I can cash it at any bank. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I do not like stories where the easy answer could have been, he, sh he should have just told John Glidden that, hey, 
I'm having trouble casting checks. Can I get some money? Like nothing stands in the way mm-hmm. because Glidden is already there. You know, he's already with him. He's like, there's nothing standing in the way of him just opening up and saying, or having a longer dialogue scene where he eventually admits like, but I'm a bad person, you know? And then John Glidden could be like, I'm fixing this movie too much. It, it doesn't need, like, it's <laughs> fine. It's, it is what it is. It's almost a hundred years old, but the moment he gave it, uh, and then that's that an idea of a sweaty premise, right? Like they can't have him admit to this because that would defeat the whole second half of the short. So that has to happen. So it's all very predetermined and it just goes through the motions, kind of like the China shop thing as well. It just goes through the motions of what was predetermined for it to quote unquote work. But in that there is a design flaw. It means you have an uphill struggle, right? It's yeah. an uphill struggle for a film to get past the idea that the entire conflict is based on a forced beat. Which is what this feels like. Yeah, exactly. For me, the most notable thing with this film, aside from, I think, some of the way it plays with morality is interesting. Like, I'm not sure how to feel about his utter failure, but one could say this film is kind of about how, you know, money cannot overcome, you know, one's preordained nature. One's inner nature as, in this case, a swindler. He's always going to be a swindler, even though he has money. But uh, there was one moment of such incredible dismissive casual racism early in it it's just the throwaway line but you know george raff walking in pretending to be the new chauffeur and the bank teller saying are you mr sheldon chauffeur yeah well i thought he had a colored boy and i i, I didn't even <laughs> i didn't even notice that one. Oh my gosh i, I oh, did and geez. again it is the parlance of the time it is the parlance of 1931 but somehow in this whole retrospective have not encountered a single moment quite so like oh right uh jim crow <laughs> right uh okay and again part of why well, i haven't encountered it is because oh, okay. hollywood was very good at sweeping all that under the rug producers studio executives no one wanted to offend either the southerners or the a lot of the more progressive audience they didn't want to offend either so they just had films where you only had to deal with safe white people right you know i can't hold it against this movie in particular any more than i can hold it against like all the other movies we've been talking about that just ignore the issue but yeah it's, it's quite disarming to see it's so plainly expressed like that the next film this is one of the good ones i think i love this one it's not good (laughs) <laughs> no, per no. Se, but I loved it. This is uh, Mad Max. I mean, Roadhogs with uh, W.C. Fields and Allison Skipworth. It is the one that on paper and I will let you do the paper part, but it, it, it is the one that on paper sounds just incredible. But once you see it, it's more like, oh, this is the way that they're telling it. OK, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. Except for the crashes. Those are those are. But anyway, yeah, oh. continue. Give me the paper. So, I mean, again, it's it, this one's one of the more convoluted ones. Uh, the, the main character is actually not W.C. Fields, even though he makes the biggest impression. It's Emily LaRue, played by Alison Skipworth, just wants a, a new car, but she takes it out and immediately gets hit by a roadhog, you know, as someone who's driving too fast um, in a very violent car crash. That car crash looked like I've witnessed a car crash in my life. It was horrific. This gave me flashbacks to that. Uh, <laughs> like, I was like, holy moly, someone call an ambulance. I, I, I can't express just how like out of nowhere this felt but 
Yeah. She gets a million dollars and her partner, played by W.C. Fields, gets a great idea. And this is the part that's tough to explain because it's very convoluted. They yeah. hire a series of like eight chauffeurs to drive a convoy of identical cars behind them. And they go out on the street, Mad Max style, provoking people into... They're, they're provoking people into becoming road hogs. So they have a reason to, to take them out. They troll other drivers into... <laughs> taking it out on them and then they ram them off the road totaling both cars they hop into the next car it's directed by norman mcleod he directed animal crackers he directed some other wc fields films it's clearly just this very anarchic director and i don't think there's anything at all remarkable about the way that he stages the scenes it's very matter of fact i mean i also think that i mean it was early days yet for sound films doing road warrior movies <laughs> you know a little bit of slack here i think this is actually pretty technically impressive considering but holy lord it is so violent yeah. and yeah. i think wc field's I was cackling at his line deliveries. I've I've only I think this is only the second Fields I've seen, but I find him very funny. This is a vehicle for WC Fields to be WC Fields, and I like what he does. Mm. So I kind of like this, even though I don't think it's very coherent, well constructed, or even very good. Yeah, I got a kick out of it. What what more can you ask for from a ten minute segment of an anthology film in nineteen thirty two? You know. <laughs> It's <laughs> a good point. I realize that I do not understand the appeal of uh, W.C. Fields. have nothing <laughs> more to say about that. It just doesn't do anything to me. Uh, what I did like, though, is that at the end, they get so into this whole provocation through, you know, crashing vehicles and stuff. She buys a new vehicle at the end, and that one crashes as well into a truck, <laughs> into a milk truck, I think. She's so excited that she just can buy a new car, but it has like a weird horniness to it that reminded me of Cronenberg's <laughs> crash. And I just oh, want to leave great. that so, there. So what you're saying is um, <laughs> like, Roadhogs, 1931, 10 minutes short. On the back of the box, you're going to put Cronenberg's crash meets The Road Warrior. That's the movie? <laughs> that's, he really, like, that's the movie. He, that's the movie. Featuring I just love, W.C. Like, Fields. W.C. Fields yeah. starts a Mad Max gang. It's... Uh, that's a bulletproof high concept. That's an elevator pitch that'll get you somewhere in yeah. 32, I'll tell you. From the highest of highs, well, not really the highest of highs, but from a high, in my opinion, to the lowest of the lows, we have Death Cell, starring Gene Raymond. If I can equate it to uh, modern cinema, I would say this is like more in the direction of Michael Haneke. It's very ironic, and I don't like Michael Haneke, so that's maybe why I equated to it, and I didn't like this one either. Uh, but continue, please. <laughs> the first thing I thought of when this short ended was that, I'm like, oh, this is the original version that was never made of the film within a film, Habeas Corpus, from the Robert Altman film, The Player. <laughs> the DA breaks into the prison, runs down death row, but he gets there too late. The gas pellets have been dropped. She's dead. I tell you. There's not a dry eye in the house. So anyways, this one is maybe the single simplest one that's not the clerk. Guy on death row gets a million bucks. He can't spend it because he's sentenced to death. That's it. James Cruz directs it. It's treading the same ground as the forger. It's just, hey, here's a situation where the guy who gets a million bucks cannot take advantage of it. But at least with the forger... There's a kind of a moral parable to it. You know, he is the boy who cried wolf, which is, I think, a strong five words on which to build your story. This is just as functional as it gets. It's just, hey, what's a situation where someone can't use it? Oh, death row. Let's do that. And it feels like no further thoughts ensued. It has that similar meanness to it where it would have been so easy to 
right that he leaves it to his partner, but he kind of fumbles his final meeting with her. I don't know. It also feels mm-hmm. very sweaty in a way. What you said is like, oh, what if someone can't use it? Which we'll return to in the future as well. People who don't use it. Mm-hmm. But this one's so clearly predetermined as well that there are so many ways in which you could have easily made this. I don't know. The conversation with his wife is not interesting at all. The lead up to that is kind of like whatever. And then he's like, oh, I got the money. That's amazing. Now I can finally get out. Right, guys? And they're like, yeah, sure. Here's the electric chair. End scene. I feel like the movie wants me or the short wants me to feel something in a certain direction. But I have no (laughs) idea if I should condemn this or if this is like a a hidden Kieslowski you know, like, like this is an anti-death row. And not, not to say that like movies should be overtly, you know, overt about their political messaging. It doesn't really work as a polemic because it, it doesn't have anything interesting to say about the irony of the situation that the forger didn't already do. Didn't do it well, but it did it. And it also doesn't develop because it's a short, very short entry in an anthology feature, not made by a genius. Maybe, I don't know, maybe uh, James Cruz is a genius, but not made by someone who is exhibiting traits of genius at the time. There's nothing for us to grab onto. Next up is The Clerk. It's like watching a, let's be very not nice to this movie, uh, you're watching a student rendition of a Michael Hanukkah movie, and then you get to watch Wes Anderson. Tag Gallagher characterized John Ford's segment of How the West Was Won as So much bad disco, momentarily ceasing for the St. Matthew Passion's final funereal chorus. You know, the same can apply here, except it's more of like the greatest Mozart concerto you've ever heard. Oh boy, the clerk. I mean, it's simple, right? Charles Lawton is a clerk. You have the the wide shot of the, the offices that both resembles the crowd and calls forward to the apartment by Billy Wilder. I do wonder if Billy Wilder saw this. I bet he did. And you have Charles Lawton. He's a lowly clerk, gets his check wordlessly. Goes through how many different doors? Five different doors, five or six. And in 11 shots, finally gets to talk to his boss or his boss's boss's boss. And what does he do? He blows a raspberry and leaves. Short ends. Two minutes, 18 seconds. It's perfect. This is a perfect film. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It was actually released separately, which is interesting because I think it only really works with the context of the film around it. Unless you have a little blurb of, hey, by the way, this happened. But I mean, what can I say? It's so clear in its staging and it's so clear in its communication that, yeah, Mm -hmm. you could lift this from the movie and it's a guy with the greatest face. I mean, Charles Lawton, he directed Night of the Hunter. Is that him? Yes. Holy moly. Yeah. He's the oldest looking 32 year old in cinematic history. (laughs) Holy moly. Yes. Charles Lawton, the genius who directed Night of the Hunter and nothing else. I don't know what to say about this short other than it's very rare you see a director just distill their style down to a pure shot like this. This is everything that makes Lubitsch Lubitsch aside from a proclivity towards sexual play and innuendo. Yeah. You have the doors. You have the beautiful use of camera blocking movement, graphic matching on the doors, use of space and objects to turn characters into archetypes. You have a the perfect subversion of our expectations. I, I love this short. It's great. And this man loves his fonts and his designs. And yeah, like you said, there's objects, but also Lawton's walk yes. makes it like his a little bit hunched, slow walk, his enormous mustache, like everything seems to not fit him. He seems like the most unlikely protagonist to 
receive the check because there's some guy sitting behind him. And for a second, it seems like the, mo- the camera is moving forward too far. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's the guy behind him who's a little bit more classically charismatic. But no, no, no. It's the guy with the round glasses, the enormous mustache, <laughs> the 15 layers of suit. Yeah, it, it's beautiful. And his expression is just incredible. The whole thing is great. And the fact that he he waits in front of the mirror to adjust his tie to then do the thing like that's Lubitsch. Keeping up every element of decorum except one. Yeah. Lawton's performance of his realization when he gets the check is so interesting because the film encourages you to see him as just the clerk. It's in the title. It's the clerk. So his reaction is almost this robotic thing as if, oh, this is just another piece of paper on my desk. His eyes don't bug out. He doesn't do what we'd expect a human being to do during yeah. that of like smiling, going, oh, my God, really? No, he just immediately accepts it as his new reality. Yeah. <laughs> Slots it in his pocket and slowly walks up the stairs in a super robotic way. So everything up to this point has led us to believe that he's not going to do anything. Maybe he'll just leave. Maybe he'll ask. Maybe he'll politely resign, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Everything is so well attuned to him breaking decorum in the simplest possible way, like blowing a raspberry for the split second he does. The simplest possible gesture you could do, that means fuck you. And a lesser director, to take a little step back, the lesser director would have, and a lesser writer, would have made a big deal about him going through, you know, the administration offices and then secretary to the president and then a private secretary, you know, like through all those doors and make like a scene at every door. No, I really have to speak to him. No, but you can't because it's the president, Mm -hmm. you know, that type of stuff. Lubitsch doesn't do that. Lubitsch knows that you just need his hunched walk and the door for the joke to land. The emphasis, too, of the meaninglessness of the doors, not just the names on them, but the fact that they all you cut to essentially the exact same shot. It feels like they didn't move the camera. They just Moved took the, the wild door. wall out, put it in another wild wall and asked Lawton to hit the exact same <laughs> marks every time. I would bet you that's Smart. what happened. And Smart. that's not a corner cutting. That's clearly deliberate to emphasize that, okay, you know, the texture of the doors changes. Notice how they get more and more imposing. They start with glass and the glass gets more opaque before being replaced by heavy, you know, like oak or something. I mean, I'm sure it's painted flat, but it gets replaced by heavier and heavier doors, which also emphasizes the determination of this guy to get through them, right? Yeah. No drama, nothing, just a guy who takes his chance. This short commentates on stuff like The China Shop, whereas that film takes, you know, 10 minutes and a whole lot of hoopla to get to a final climax that is 10 times as transgressive, 100 times as transgressive of what, as what Lawton does here. It lands like a thud, though. Then the clerk shows us why, right? Because it's a simple joke, really. You don't need mm-hmm. a lot of tools to tell it. And mm-hmm. in this case, using the simplest, almost comically simple tools, this short almost feels like a parody of the films around it. <laughs> it feels like Lubitsch going, well, yeah. what are you guys doing? Come on, come on, let's be real here. All you need is this. <laughs> because... All of them show the immediate reaction and the choice they make of that million dollars, but no Mm -hmm. one shows like a longer term thing. You know, person has a life, the money arrives, person's life changes. They got fuck you money or, you know, something else happens. But it's all immediately after they get the money and you see the immediate effect of, you know, the money arriving. But there none of the shorts, which would be a direction I would have gone with if I were tasked with a thing like this. I would have maybe explored a little bit further into the future. I was like, okay, so what does this mean long term that you've got all this money suddenly, you know, like maybe they run out of it or 
you could go in multiple directions with this, but all of them do that immediate thing. And Lubitsch is short as the only one who accepts the facts like, if it's an immediate reaction to an enormous change, like, you know, a left turn, that is basically a joke. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to tell you a joke in the most efficient way I can possibly think of and making it very funny and making it very simple. That's what you said about the China shop. It's so unnecessarily convoluted for what it eventually is. Yeah. I mean, all you need in the China shop sketch, all you need is two things. You need to set up. He's breaking China accidentally and put upon. You need the payoff. He somehow gets his revenge. And even then, do you need it? <laughs> um, there is one thing about the clerk that I find interesting, and that's that, according to the Scott Iman book, this was not his first or even his second idea of Lubitsch's. His first idea was a short involving Marlena Dietrich. Um, it was, again, one scene. I'm going to read directly from his book here. The scene apparently opened with Dietrich in bed, angrily waiting for her errant husband to return home. Lubitsch comes home drunk and struggles to undress himself. As he comes to bed, he makes a woozy pass at her, and she pretends to be asleep. After he falls asleep and begins to snore, she gets out of bed and begins rummaging through his clothes, discovering the check. Her attitude suddenly changes. She gets into bed, leans over to his prone form, and says to him, Darling! And they fade out. Clerk seems better, yeah. The clerk seems better, but also, it's tough to judge these on paper. If, If someone were to say what the clerk is to me, I might go, eh. But it's mm, it's all about point. how it's the intricacies of it. Yeah. And then this is 10 times more shocking. Another idea that was tossed around. Lubitsch wanted to do a Marx Brothers short. Mm. <laughs> so it apparently that this sounds interesting. The film begins by following a man climbing stairs and going into a room. His wife is lying in bed and, and Groucho is hiding inside a closet. Believe it or not, Groucho would say, I'm waiting for a streetcar. At that moment, a streetcar would clang into frame in the bedroom. And Groucho would jump on as the streetcar rolled out of the scene. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I guess it's about Groucho Marx getting a million bucks and being able to order a streetcar to go into a bedroom. Uh, this sounds <laughs> hilar- like that. Sound, I mean, I, I would kill to see that. Uh, that that yeah. sounds lovely. But the Groucho Marx learns Lubitsch crossover never happened. Do we want to talk about the three Marines? I mean, we don't, but we got it. <laughs> yeah, we're on this. We're on this journey now, so we might as well. So, The Three Marines, I should add, directed by William A. Sider, starring Gary Cooper, Jack Oakey, and a few other people that I did not know. This one is about Steve Gallagher, who is the person who will be getting the check from John Glidden. They're all Marines. He has two buddies. He punched the sergeant in the face, and therefore he's now in, he's in the stockade. So his friends then decide to also punch the guy the sergeant in the face so they can join him in the stockade. That's where John Glidden shows up with his million dollar check and tells them, hey, you now have a million dollars. They are fools and see that it's April Fool's Day. Uh, All three of them don't believe John Glidden. So they uh, kick him out of the stockade and then they use the million dollar check as uh, the fake money that they're currently gambling with. Ultimately, they get released from their little prison thing and they go to the uh what is it like a burger milkshake shop where their combined love interest is working and it's a very dover boys at pimento university type situation with the love interest for those of you who know dover boys at pimento university uh, you, you know who you are it's so cool it just keeps going and they just eventually they just give the the check to the guy who runs the 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 the, the stand the burger stand whatever uh, for and they tell him that it's a ten buck check and then some more stuff happened and eventually they land their ass back in into the jail cell thing and they see 
the man they gave the check to with a massive car. And of course, the lady, the very young uh, shared love interest that they all three had uh, is on his arm. And oh, how did he get the money? Oh, my God. And the one funny line is in that end where one of them says, I think I'll go lie down. And I thought that was a good reaction to the whole situation. Because I also felt like I needed to lie down after that one because, oh boy, was it sweaty. It's, it's interesting because it, it, this is the one that feels much longer than it is. It's only like 11 minutes. It feels like 20 if it's one. Oh, wow. I paused after that one. I had to tend to my chicken, but also I was so, yeah. <laughs> so to, to me, I mean, I have two thoughts about this one. Yeah. My first is yeah. that I was fully expecting it to be something in the vein of Treasure of the Sierra Madre, or for those of us who get the Simpsons references, three men in a comic book. I was expecting it to be, hey, million dollar check, they fight over it. Because what he does is Gary Cooper bets the million dollar check yeah. in a game. And I was expecting them to have a dispute when they all realize it's real. And they're like, oh, that's my check. That's my check. That's my check. And in hindsight, I think that would have been a much more interesting story. 100%. That would have actually brought something new to the table instead of this, which is just, this is just the forger again. The irony here is similar, a bit different. It's about how, you know, people, Gary Cooper in particular, doesn't have the ability to accept things as sincerely good, you know? So therefore mm-hmm. he assumes this is a joke and he pays it forward by ripping off this old man. The irony is, oh, the old man realizes that it's real. Mm. He gets the money. Gary Cooper doesn't. But it's just so it's thin gruel. I don't know. It's like what what's stopping them from just taking the thing to the bank to check if it's real? Like what is stopping them to do that? What a bunch of idiots. I, I cannot I cannot be friends with these people. I'm sorry. I'm not exactly sure if this is all a parable. What, what did we learn, Palmer? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I don't have much to say about this one. I, it's not particularly interestingly directed. I think Gary Cooper is weirdly pretty good in it. He doesn't actively stumble over his lines like in certain other films I've seen from this period. But, you know, he does. Yeah, he does stumble. There's actually a couple stumbles couple less. of. <laughs> yeah, OK. But he actually there are a couple stumbles in this movie where you can clearly see that they went with uh, take one or two and then had to move on because it was a very it was a film made very quickly to make money. Yes, it cost less than 300,000 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And so they made it as cheap as possible so that it would have the biggest profit margin, basically. And it worked great. It made a lot of money. Yeah. You know what, though? Grandma, the last one. By Stephen Roberts again. I didn't dislike Grandma. I found the first half of it actually no. really upsetting. So Grandma is about um, a woman named Mary Walker, who is the, the most prominent member of this retirement home for old ladies run by Mrs. Garvey, who, who is this tyrannical figure, essentially, uh, you know, capriciously enforces rules, treats them like kids, you know, no fun. Uh, she's Nurse Ratched. And, you know, the million dollars lets Mary Walker uh, buy the place and turn it into a fun uh, you know, a fun party home where they all, you know, get to meet some old guys. Seems that John Glidden becomes a patron. I like that. I like that he kind of finds his happiness with all these old yeah. ladies. Good for him. No, I think this one, you know what? I'm going to add this one into the pile that mostly works. This fundamentally, I think, is on solid ground, largely because I think it actually it doesn't pull its punches with the terror of aging alone. Yeah. That first few minutes, this is the longest one, I believe. And the first few minutes of it are truly, Ani and I were like, biting our nails a little because it was so it really gets at that horror that we all feel you know what happens when we're old and alone and are in a home knock on wood i die before that oh, happens yeah, yeah, yeah. and you are at the mercy of people who are more able than you and maybe don't have your best interests at heart and mary's victory over 
Miss Garvey is a little mean spirited. <laughs> no, no, but it's 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 earned. It's earned. It's a very classical way of stacking up all the bad shit so that by the time she does the bad shit, yeah. it looks like good shit. So that works pretty well. And I had the thought of one flew over the cuckoo's nest meets the best exotic marigold hotel. <laughs> That's my take on this. No, but this one actually mostly works. It's fun. Her performance everyone's performance in this is pretty good the fact that they tie john glidden back into the end where yeah he becomes a patron of the, of the marigold hotel is very fun and yeah it's depressing its setup is actually eff- effectively depressing especially with one of the ladies pretends that her husband mm-hmm. is still alive even though that she's talking to an empty pillow and then the lady running the place is uh wants to break that bubble and mary walker just decides to like take her to the side and be like you're not gonna burst that. that's a really good speech like you're not gonna burst the bubble you're not gonna you know that's the only thing she's clinging on to for happiness and i'm not gonna let you you know destroy that for her yeah that's good stuff some good stuff in there it's not great but it's that's the thing that with anthology films just to take it a little bit broader if you have to rank them you know, this would be top three or something. It has the uh, tremendous good fortune of having one quite good character, which is Mary Walker, I think is actually, she's well etched. Even before she rebels, she's well etched. And they do a good job of writing her. So yeah, if I had a million, it's actually a fairly significant point in Lubitsch's career and that this film occurred at a time when they were trying to basically Lubitsch had become the de facto house style of Paramount so this and originally One Hour With You before he took it over from George Cukor were kind of attempts to almost do Lubitsch films without Lubitsch <laughs> you know do like outsource Lubitsch to other directors so they can get more of that magic never really worked this film is a key data point in him becoming production head of Paramount in a few years but uh, there is one other historical thing I do want to mention uh, right after this film opened he visited Berlin for the last time in December of 1932, which for those of you who remember our first episode of the whole series is about six weeks before the Nazis took over. And imagining Lubitsch there, apparently there was a kind of a state party where there were numerous Nazis present and there were may, may or may not have been some tensions at that party that Lubitsch may or may not have diffused with his usual aplomb. A society reporter asked him why he no longer worked in Germany. He said, uh, that's finished. Nothing good is going to happen here for a long time. You know, true words. <laughs> uh, maybe mm-hmm, truer than mm-hmm. he thought. But How right he was. So he, he left never to come back. It's a sober point to finish our discussion on if I had a million, uh, you know, it'll buy you a K-car, a nice reliant automobile. So, Brom, I have a question. If John Glidden came through time to give you a check for a million euros... And we build that up with inflation. If John Glidden were to come up to you and give you somewhere between 16 and 18 million euros, what would you do? I would remake this movie. <laughs> because you I would be curious. That. Come on, what was my other answer going to be? No, I'm, I'm curious to see how this would. <laughs> ah, fuck it. I'll buy a house with the proceeds of this movie because the, the industry works the same way as back then. Right? <laughs> right? I think it would be interesting to see what modern day directors would do with a with a conceit like this. Because, you know, you have the Paris, uh, Paris Je Thames and the, the VHSs and, 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 you know, different anthology films. Uh, it would be interesting to see people try to crack a joke in these these trying times about getting a lot of money suddenly i would keep it at a million because a million bucks is still a lot of money it's a lot less now but it's a lot of money still i'll give you 40 percent of a detached house in vancouver Uh (laughs) wow yeah (laughs) i thought the lubitsch like leaving berlin uh, was depressing but wow yep (laughs) that's depressing (laughs) what would you do 
So that it comes out to yeah. around 27 million Canadian dollars ish, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. First, I would get a nice three bedroom downtown. Then I would find a nice little property somewhere on like Lake Geneva or something. Um, I get that too. Mm. Then I put the rest in a bank and get this interest. It's a lot of interest in that. <laughs> I would let it. I would let it compound, and I just live comfortably for the rest of my life. Not, you know, doing doing stuff like this. I would just, you know, do more Lubitsch podcasts, and make some movies, make some experimental films. From the, I would do what the protagonist in this film did: free myself from the pressure of capital by buying mm. real estate. What I want to do is to fund movies, but I also know that that's a one-way ticket to not having the twenty-seven million in a few years. I actually have a hard time like entertaining hypotheticals like that because I'd still have to reckon with the fact that I'm living my life. No, yeah, I would, I would, I would remake this movie. I think your answer is much more fun. Yeah, I didn't want to burst your bubble, but uh, you're you're being a bit bit of a bit of a realist uh, bore here I know. Uh, right now. <laughs> For someone who spent a year on Lubitsch, I'm real pragmatic. All right, yep. well, I'm, I'm gonna not torture our editors anymore. Uh, this is fun. <laughs> Yeah, we had a, yeah, we had like eight movies to talk about, and some of them weren't very good, but we always find a way. Yeah, well, thanks again, Brom. Of course. Next week, Molly Raspberry joins us to discuss Design for Living. Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Sophia Yoon was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. 